Good morning. Uh, I'll be reading from Ephesians 1 uh, this morning, uh, verse 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Thanks, Wilson. As you can see, we're starting a new series this week, looking at the book of Ephesians. And just a reminder, we have these little booklets uh, on the back table if you want them. They are the book of Ephesians, but with Nice note-taking pages um, right next to them. Um, We handed them out last week. We might be almost out of them now, but we've ordered a few more. So if you haven't gotten yours yet, hopefully we'll have more for you next week. Or if you need one, you can have this copy right now. Anyone need one? (laughs) And this is great for, if you wanna read along, we encourage you to read through Ephesians on your own as we're going through this study. And you can take notes in the note pages as you listen to sermons, you can take notes in these booklets. And then as you read through Ephesians, you can be reminded of what we talked about in the sermon um, so that you can hopefully have more reminders to help incorporate it into your life. So if you haven't gotten one of those yet, there may be a couple more on the back table. um, But if not this week, we'll hopefully have them here next week for us to be able to pass them to you again. And Ephesians, it's a letter and it's written by the apostle Paul to a church in the ancient city of Ephesus. And I realize it's tempting for people in our day and age to look at something like this, a a 2000 year old letter and feel like what could that possibly have to do with our world today? But Ephesus and the people who lived there had far more in common with Hong Kong than we may think. Yes, we're removed by over two, almost 2000 years and over 8,000 kilometers. But let me tell you a little bit about what life in ancient Ephesus was like and see if any of this sounds familiar to you, okay? 
So the first thing that you should really know about Ephesus is that it was a trading center and it was able to be such a wealthy trading center because it had a really good port. Sound familiar? And because of its strategic location and the wealth that could be gained from living there, its population just grew and grew and grew so that it became one of the most populous cities in the Roman Empire. Because of this, it also became a center of learning and philosophy. People from the surrounding area would come to Ephesus because they had the best educational opportunities around. Think about how many people from surrounding nations come to Hong Kong because our universities offer better educational opportunities than what they can get there. Ephesus became a hub of regional urban development. You can think of it as sort of being part of the Greater Bay Development Plan of its day. Ephesus was given the title, the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. Let me translate that. I think that means it was Asia's world city of its day. The people in Ephesus had a lot in common with the people of Hong Kong. One other thing, Ephesus gave you lots and lots of options about which religion you could follow. Pretty much anything out there was available to you as an option. And you were encouraged to freely choose whichever religion you wanted as long as you kept your views open and were okay with other people choosing other religions. You can choose whatever religion you want as long as it doesn't make you close-minded. Sound familiar? Despite the time and the distance that separates us from this church, we have more in common with the people of ancient Ephesus than I think we tend to realize. And Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus to teach them about God's all-encompassing plans for the universe and to answer the questions, what is God doing and how do we fit into it? What is God doing and how do we fit into it? And since God's plans are for the entire universe, that means despite all the time and distance between them and us, God's plans are plans that involve us as well. And all the similarities between their situation and ours means that it might be easier to bridge some of those gaps than we may have initially thought. So we're going to be looking through this book over the coming several weeks. And today, we're going to look at the intro to this book, the first 14 verses. And what we're going to see in these 14 verses is that God blesses us so he can be praised. God blesses us so he can be praised. And we're going to look at abundant blessings, secure blessings, and the purpose of blessings. But first, let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you that you're a God who speaks. You're a God who has spoken and showed us who you are, who showed us what you're doing in the world, showed us how we can be part of it. And God, I pray today as we look at your word that we would see and understand these things more clearly and that we would grow in our desire to be part of what you're doing in this world. God, we love you, but help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have some Bible trivia for you, okay? You ready? Anyone, anyone feel pretty confident they're going to have the answer? All right, here's the question. The longest verse in the Bible, what's it about? The longest verse in the Bible, what's it about? Anyone think it's about the rules, how to keep the rules? We got one vote. Anyone think it's about how God's really upset with us and angry about how badly we failed? Anyone think it's just like in the middle of a story somewhere and a couple, yeah? Any other guesses? Who thinks it's saying something positive? A few? Blessings? All right. That's a, that's a very good guess. That's actually the right answer. Yes. You, context clues. Very good. 
Yeah, so the original Greek that Paul wrote this letter in didn't have punctuation like we do today. So as you read through verses three through 14, you'll probably see it broken into about four different sentences in your English version. But if you follow the flow of thought from the original Greek, verses three through 14 in today's passage, it's one long sentence. Any, any periods put in there to break it into multiple sentences have been done to make it easier for us to read and understand because it's just a really, really, really long sentence. And this is the longest sentence in the Bible. And if you look through this sentence, the longest sentence in the Bible, it's all about the blessings that God has given us. The longest sentence in the Bible is entirely dedicated to listing out and explaining and celebrating the blessings that God has given to his people. Did you know that? That's awesome, right? Like there's a powerful truth to remind ourselves of whenever we're feeling discouraged, whenever we're tempted to believe God doesn't really love us. The longest sentence in the Bible is about his blessings to us. And this list, if you look through the list, it's incredible. I want to show us a couple of things about the list. First, the whole Trinity is at work in this list. So if you don't know what the Trinity is, as Christians, we believe there's only one God, but he exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each is distinct. Each is fully God, but there's only one God. How does that work? I don't know. But that's what the Bible teaches us. So that's what we believe. And all three members of the Trinity are at work in this passage right here. We see in verse three that Christians have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because God the Father blessed us, which is really huge. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard this or thought this. Have any of you ever heard this or thought this? You can put your hand up even if it wasn't you, if someone else said it. But there's this feeling that's common among lots of people today that like in the Old Testament, God's really mean, God's really harsh. God the Father, he's so judgmental. And then you get to the New Testament and Jesus just sort of like calms him down. Anyone ever heard that somewhere? Yeah? So check out what's happening right here. What this passage is saying is that God the Father does not somehow change his character when you get to the New Testament. Jesus doesn't somehow come and, and cause the Father to chill out. Jesus comes because the Father's heart has always been to bless his people. God the Father is a God of blessing. He has been, he is, he always will be. And he sends Jesus to bless his people because he is a God of overflowing blessing and love. He's not somehow changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He is consistent throughout. And Jesus' coming is actually perfectly in line with the character and plan of the Father who wants to bless his people. The Father is at work in all of these blessings that are given to Christians right here. But it's not just the Father, because Jesus is involved too. If you read through this passage, in these verses, there's, there's this phrase that keeps coming up, in Christ Jesus, or in him, or in the beloved, all referring to Jesus. If you read through verses 3 through 14, this phrase, in Christ, or in him, or in the beloved, occurs 11 different times. If you want something to be important in writing, you repeat it. If you repeat something 11 times in 11 verses, it's very, very important. Actually, this phrase gets repeated so many times in Paul's original Greek that the English translators often tend to like cut one or two of them out because they're like, it's too much. There's too much in Christ, too much in him, just jammed into all these verses. Let's cut some out so it's not so repetitive. 
but the repetition is so important because yes, these blessings come because they're part of the Father's plan, but how do they become ours? Through us being in Christ. To be in Christ means to, to be connected to him like a branch of a plant is connected to the root. Your life flows from there. If something happens to it, it happens to you. And that can be like a negative thing. Like if, if the root gets no water, then you dry out. But with Jesus, it's constantly, constantly a positive thing. Oh, I'm in Christ. He's perfect. Guess what? So am I. I'm in Christ. He's God's son. Guess what? So am I. I'm in Christ. He's rich. Guess what? So am I. Every one of these blessings becomes ours by us being connected to Jesus in this life-giving way. And then third, we see the Holy Spirit is involved too. We're going to unpack this more later, but if you look at verses 13 and 14, it talks about how we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit and how he is the guarantee of our inheritance. All of these blessings, we know that they're ours and they will be fully ours someday because the Holy Spirit has come to be with us. We get all of these blessings through the entire Trinity working together to bless us. It's not like one or two members of the Trinity are like, yes, let's do good things for them. And the other one's like, I don't know. You got to convince me. No, all of them work together throughout all of history, all eternity, the entire universe to bring blessing to God's people. How incredible is that? And what are these blessings that we have through the Trinity working together to bless us? Let me cover a few of them. First, it says, God chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world. And what did he choose us for? It says to make us holy, that means set apart for him, and blameless. So think about this. Try to wrap your mind around this. Before the universe existed, God looked forward in history at everyone who ever was, is, or will be a Christian. And he said, I want them not because of anything special in us, not because of anything different about us, but just because God is gracious. And God being gracious doesn't just mean he shows favor and blessing to the undeserving. It means he shows favor and blessing to the people who deserve the exact opposite. God looks at us in shame and misery and a complete mess. And he's like, I want them. From before eternity, we, we had done nothing to make ourselves stand out and, and be special. No, God just looked at us and he's like, I love them because I love them. I want them to be mine. And his desire for us to be his special people goes so deep that in verse five, it says that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Now, you may be wondering right now, why as sons is God sexist? Let me give you a little history lesson right here. This is not God being sexist. This is a cultural thing from Paul's day. In our world, we adopt kids because we want them to be part of our family. We want to raise them and, and be able to shape them and influence them. In the ancient world, you didn't do that. In the ancient world, you adopted someone if you were really wealthy and old and didn't have an heir because you needed someone to take over your wealth when you were dead and gone. And so many, if not most adoptions in the ancient world actually were of adults, not of children. You would adopt an adult who you knew, who you liked, who you considered trustworthy to continue managing your estate once you were gone. And you adopted them so that when you died, they could get all your wealth. 
And in lots of ancient societies, men could own property, women different. <laughs> women couldn't. So guess who you would always adopt if you were adopting someone? A man. Every time. Because you wanted them to have the full legal rights of an heir. That's what Paul is talking about right here. When he says God adopts us as sons, he's not saying God is somehow sexist, that, that men are better than others. He's saying when God adopts us, we get full legal rights of the inheritance. The inheritance that God's gonna give us. It's a, a pretty big one, if you were wondering. It's ours because we have the full legal rights and we get that personal relationship of, of God being our father, us being his children. What an incredible blessing, but that's not all. Next, we see that God redeems us. To redeem means to buy back. The Bible teaches that all of us, from the moment of our birth, we have this attitude of rebellion against God. We look at God, we're like, hey, I know you say to live this way. I'm not really a fan of living that way. I think life would work better if I do things my way. How about you get off the throne? Let me be in charge. I'll tell you how things should work and life will be better for me. Can anyone relate to that? We all can because we are all born this way. And what the Bible tells us is that that cuts us off from our relationship with God and it puts us in a debt that we could never repay. And what we see here when it says he redeems us, it means that God himself through Jesus pays the debt so we can be forgiven, we can be set free, we can come back and have that relationship with God that we were created for, that's our source of life. Incredible blessings. In verse 10, we see that he has a plan to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. Now we might be like, what, what's that talking about? But this is again, huge. You go back to the very beginning of the Bible. God creates the world. God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden of Eden and he puts them in control to rule over all of creation as his representatives. Adam and Eve in Eden are essentially the king and queen of creation. And as we know, if you have a country with an evil king and queen, is it just the king and queen that suffers? No, the entire country suffers because they are living under the rule of an evil king and queen. Adam and Eve, when they rebelled against God and disobeyed him and ate that fruit, yes, it impacted them and all humanity, but it didn't just impact humanity. It impacted everything under humanity's rule and reign. And so ever since then, all of creation throughout the universe has this tendency to break apart and fall apart. You guys ever heard of the second law of thermodynamics? No? Okay, so basically the second law of thermodynamics says unless you add energy to a system, things in that system move from order to chaos. So you can think of, of a building unless you're constantly doing maintenance on like this building that we're meeting in right now, you come back down the road and it's not gonna be a bigger, more beautiful, cleaner, more perfect building. It's gonna be a pile of rubble because the way things work in the world is if you're not putting more energy into it, it's breaking down and falling apart. It happens with buildings. It happens with our bodies, right? We get old and things just stop working like they used to, like they're supposed to. It happens with society. We have things like racism and poverty and war. Society breaks down and falls apart. Things break down across the board. Science tells us that it's only about 5 billion years until the sun burns out. The fate that humanity unleashed on the world 
It's chaos, disorder, destruction, death of everything until the entire universe is just empty black space. But what's God doing? He's working to unite all things in Christ. He's reversing that curse that humanity brought on creation. Like just take a second and imagine what that world would be like. Like you imagine coming back here in 50 years and no one has touched this building, but the building's in even better shape than it is today. Imagine 50 years down the road, your vision has improved and you can run faster than you can right this moment. That just seems absurd, doesn't it? But that's what God is doing. He's, he's flipping things around from the way they are and he's inviting you and me to be part of that work. What, what a blessing. And then we see that God seals and guarantees us with the Holy Spirit, which we'll get into more later. But there are so many blessings in this passage. And as you read through the passage, it's not just that the blessings themselves are great, but look at the way Paul talks about them. It just feels a little bit excessive, doesn't it? Like in verse three, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, every single one, nothing missing. And to clarify, the heavenly places that he's talking about here, it's not like somewhere out there up in the sky. If you could find it, you'd see like God on a throne there or something like that. No, it's this spiritual realm that's playing out right here, right now, interacting with our daily lives, but we can't see it. It's the realm where angels and demons and the Holy Spirit are at work. And Paul says in that realm, where spiritual beings are at work in the midst of us right now, if you're a Christian, you have every spiritual blessing in that realm. If you're walking with Jesus, you have nothing to fear because nothing from that realm can harm you. And if you're like, Eric, you're a little bit crazy. I think you've lost it. There is no spiritual realm happening right here where we can't see it. Just think of Wi-Fi, right? We're all familiar with the idea that things that can impact and change our lives can be happening in this space around us where we are in a way that we can't see, right? If we, if we know that it can happen with computers, why can it not happen with spiritual beings as well? Something to think about and consider. But Paul is saying we have, if we are Christians, we have every spiritual blessing in this realm. And then he goes on with this big language. In verse four, you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Like I know the idea of election, predestination, it's a big topic of debate in many churches today. Paul didn't say this because he was trying to start a debate. He was saying this to get us excited about God's work for us. Like if you are a Christian or if you will someday become a Christian, here's what this means for you. There has literally never been a single moment in all of history, even before history, when your salvation was not utterly, completely, totally secure. If God chose us before the foundation of the world, that means if you are a Christian or will someday become a Christian, there has never been a single moment where your salvation was anything less than perfectly secure. And if you're wondering, this does not undermine human responsibility, the need to respond in faith. We see that right here in verse 13 of today's passage. We need to hear the gospel and believe to be saved. But this gives us such security. Like there was never a moment where anything was in doubt from God's perspective. And then the big language continues. In verses seven and eight, he blessed us according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Riches. He lavished them. There's, there's abundance and overflow, all wisdom and insight. He held absolutely nothing back. 
And then in verse 10, again, he's uniting all things in him, things in heaven and earth. It's not just about me. It's not just about you. It's about everything in the universe, visible, invisible, past, present, future. That's why in the second half of of Ephesians, Paul's going to go so deep into things like, okay, okay, so you're a Christian. Here's what this means for you. You need to interact properly with the church and with your spouse and with your kids and with your bosses and your coworkers and your call, like the people who work for you, because salvation isn't just about you. It's an invitation for you to join God in the work that he's doing in the universe. And your role in that starts with showing practical love to the people you interact with most often. Paul uses huge language again and again and again in this passage. And why? I mean, you get the feeling that Paul himself is just overwhelmed by how amazing these blessings are. God's work in us and in the universe is so incredible that it's overwhelming. And does anyone at this point feel like it's, it's got to be too good to be true? Yeah? All right. So that's where verses 13 and 14 come in, because these are not just abundant blessings, they are secure blessings. See, Paul writes this passage in such a way that he is trying to remind us these, these, these blessings are things we can have confidence in. He's not exaggerating. God has not written a check too big for him to cash. And how do we know that this promise is secure? How do we know God's gonna come through on the things that he says? Well, verses 13 and 14 tell us about two things the Holy Spirit has done in this process of blessing. And both of them, point to the security we have that God will keep his promises. So in verse 13, it says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? When you become a Christian, God sends his Holy Spirit to live inside you, to guide you, to teach you how to live life. And Paul is saying part of what the spirit does by coming to live inside us is to seal us. To seal something is to mark it as yours. So I I mentioned earlier, Judah, our oldest son, started school for the first time ever this week. He is now a K-1 student. Big, exciting changes in our family. And Justine and I have been learning the routine this week of being kindergarten parents. I know most of you have been through this already. It's a big change in life, going from no kids in school to a kid in school. And one of the things we've learned about being kindergarten parents is that when you send your kid to kindergarten, everything needs to be labeled. Their bag needs to be labeled. Their books need to be labeled. Their clothes that they're wearing on their body need to be labeled. The change of clothes that you send with them in case they pee themselves need to be labeled. And the bag that you send those clothes in needs to be labeled. Their shoes need to be labeled. Their water bottle needs to be labeled. Everything needs to be labeled so you know who it belongs to because they're kindergartners and kindergartners lose things and misplace things. And if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit does for you what the name tag does for Judah's school uniform. It marks you as belonging to someone, not because God is in danger of losing you, but because God wants you to know you are secure, you are his And the Holy Spirit, thankfully, does not mark you as belonging to Judah. It marks you as belonging to God. So you and I can have confidence that that we have a God who will keep his promises 
because he has already put his name tag on us if we're Christians and marked us as his own. But he didn't stop there. We see in verse 14, the Holy Spirit, he's also the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. This word guarantee, it's the word for a deposit or a down payment. It is the stuff you put down at the start of a big purchase to show you're good for the rest of it. And if you end up not being good for the rest, it's the part that the bank or the landlord gets to keep and hold on to against your missed payments. So another big change this week, big news, Justine and I are moving. We're not leaving the church. We're not leaving Tung Chung. We're just moving to Seaview Crescent right down the street. Um, mark your calendars. We're going to need some help moving if you're available. <laughs> um, but we had to sign a contract on Friday for our new flat. And when we did that, we had to put down two months rent as our security deposit at the start. And if we wreck the flat, or if we stop paying our rent on the flat, or we just pack up and leave town before the rental period ends, if we in any way fail to keep our end of that lease agreement, that security deposit that we put down becomes our landlord's money. If we don't keep our end of the deal, we lose the deposit. And if you're listening to all of Paul's big language about the blessings that God gives us and the inheritance and all things in heaven and on earth, and you're like, this is too good to be true, this reminds us it's not. God has put a deposit down on this contract. He's made an advance payment that he forfeits if he doesn't hold up his end of the deal. And like with our flat, Justine and I had to put down money. It's a big chunk of money, but it's just money right? If, if we lose it, it'll be inconvenient. It'll hurt, but we can always earn more money. Not a big deal. But God's deposit on our salvation is something far, far, far more valuable. It's his spirit. God's putting down his spirit as a deposit is literally God's way of saying, if I don't come through on my promises to you, I will lose at the most fundamental level what it means for me to be God. He could not make a bigger deposit. It's like if I went to my landlord and I was like, my security deposit is my head, right? If I don't keep my end of the lease, I just cease existing. You just chop it off, right? Like, like you cannot get more secure than that promise. God has promised us that if he does not keep his end of this deal, what it means for him to be God just, just falls out of existence. And that's not gonna happen. Now, why would God care so much about this promise that he makes it so costly and secure of a deposit on it? Let's look at the purpose of the blessings. And the reason is God has a bigger purpose in blessing us. See, God's plan, it's not just for you and me, it's for the entire universe. We already said he, he has a plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And, and on one level, that shouldn't happen, right? Like we've already seen humanity ruined it for everyone and everything. Our failure plunged the universe into chaos. And when that happened, it looked like God's amazing plan of creating a beautiful world ruled by creatures who could love him and trust him and obey him was destroyed like the serpent had won. But God doesn't give up so easily. God is passionate about setting things right, so passionate about setting things right that he literally was willing to move heaven and earth, to step into creation as one of us in order to set it right. And he will stop at absolutely nothing to see that his people who he has chosen from before the foundation of the world end up as his children, as his heirs. 
See, the death of Jesus that pays the price for sin and, and undoes its penalty, that is the price required to unite all things and make them new. Because Jesus has died and risen again, all of heaven and earth is one day gonna be united in exactly the way God has planned. And here's what this means. This is crazy. No realm of reality. No realm of reality, whether that's human or animals or plants or rocks or the earth or the sky, the solar system, the sun, moon, stars, the, the angels, nothing is left unaffected by this uniting. One day, all of creation, everything in the entire universe, physical, spiritual, if there are other realms we're not aware of, it's going to be brought back together to operate exactly the way that it's meant to. God is going to make this happen. And he's inviting you and me to join him in this work. Like God has a cosmic rescue mission that he is working on. It's one whose success is guaranteed. It's one that's never gonna end. And he's inviting you and me to join him right now in that work. And of course, on our own, we're incapable of this. But this is why Paul wrote this amazing, glorious, really crazy long sentence to remind us that we're not alone. We're not on our own. God's at work. He's rescued us. He's transformed us. He's working in us and through us to accomplish things of universal and eternal significance. Like, take a second to think about that. God is working in you and through you right now to accomplish things of universal and eternal significance. Like, that's why Christians aren't just rushed off to heaven the moment we get saved. Because God has a work, a super important work for you and me to do right here. And in the coming weeks, we're going to unpack more of what it looks like for us to be at work with God on this mission. But right now, I'm just going to give you a taster, okay? If we as Christians are joining God in his work, what's it going to look like? Well, we're going to be the most loving, most committed people there are. We're going to be the glue that holds different relationships together because we're a foretaste of the fact that in Christ, God is uniting everything in heaven and on earth together. We're going to be God's tool for uniting people who would never otherwise come together. Like if Christians are really God's partners in uniting all things in heaven and on earth, we should be the most willing people to stick it out in hard marriages. Like I realize there are situations where biblically you have the right to leave. I recognize there are situations where like people's health and safety is at danger and it's wise to leave. But our culture so often is so quick to just hit the eject button because things got hard. Oh, he didn't do his share of the chores. I'm out. She doesn't have sex with me enough. I'm out. He cares more about his job than he does about me. I'm out. It's, it's just not convenient. So I'm done. But if being a Christian is really about being part of God's plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth, Christians should be the most committed people to doing whatever is necessary to make our marriages work. So let me ask, if your marriage is struggling, what can you do to strengthen it and, and bring unity in it? Does that mean doing more chores even more than your fair share? Do it. Does it mean like turning off the TV so you can listen to your spouse when she shares with you? Turn it off. Does it mean going to marriage counseling so that you can have someone else help you in this process of growing closer together? Like go to marriage counseling. Like there's no shame or stigma in going to marriage counseling. Justine and I love marriage counseling. 
We, our ability to communicate and show love to one another, I think is like five years further along, if not more, than it would be if we had never been to marriage counseling. And if you're like, we would love to do marriage counseling, but we don't have the money for it, come talk to me or one of the elders. We have a church benevolence fund to help people with financial needs and investing in marriages is so important that if that's something that we can do with that fund, we want to do that. Christians are called to be those who bring radical unity in our world, and that starts at home. And teens, I know you're not married, so you might've just zoned out a little bit while I was talking about marriage. What does it look like for you to be part of this work that God's doing, uniting all things in heaven and on earth? All right, one, one quick, quick idea. When you come into church on Sunday, just look around the room for other teens that maybe you're not as close with. And just say good morning to them and ask how their week was. And listen, don't just say that and walk away. Like ask them and listen. Maybe invite them to come sit with you. Let them know you're thankful and glad that they are here at church today with you. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're like, well, none of this applies to me, guess what? God is inviting you right here, right now, today to get in on this. All these blessings that we've been talking about that, that expand through the whole universe and all of time can become yours today. We see it right here in verse 13. All you have to do is hear the word of truth, this gospel of your salvation, what you've been listening to just now about how God is rescuing and restoring all things and believe. You've heard it. Will you believe in it? God is inviting you to join him in this work, to be part of that process of uniting all things in heaven and on earth. And as Christians, if we get excited about this, we we're transformed by God. We're blessed by God. We join him in this work of bringing blessing to all of creation. What's the end result going to be? Well, three times in this passage, we see that God has done these things to the praise of his glorious grace or to the praise of his glory. So God blesses us. God invites us to join him in his work so that he can be praised for his goodness and his glory. God sacrificially goes out of his way. He moves heaven and earth to rescue a people for himself so that when we look at him, we'll go, wow, how amazing and awesome is God. And I realize the way we see the world, when we hear that God wants to be praised, it just sounds a bit narcissistic, doesn't it? That we can be honest, this is a safe place. Does anyone else feel that way? Like, oh, God does all this stuff so he can be praised? Like, so full of himself, right? But think about this. We all love to praise things that we find beautiful and exciting. Like I've, the past few months, had so many conversations where people have been like, have you seen the new Top Gun? So good, right? Yeah, we, we know, right? And here's the thing. It's true. It's a great movie. But why do we need to talk about how great it is? Why can't we just go to the theater, watch it, come home and be like, I enjoyed it? Because how much we appreciate and enjoy that movie grows when we talk about it with our friends right? By watching the movie, we're like, that was awesome. But then by going out and hanging out with our friends and telling them about how awesome it was and he having them tell us, it actually makes us more excited about how great this movie was. Like, can you imagine going to a rock concert and having someone come up on stage beforehand and being like, all right, so special announcement, no clapping or cheering is allowed in the show today. Would anyone be like, oh, wow, I respect these guys so much more right now. They're so humble. No, you'd be like, come on! I came here so that they could hear me cheering for them. 
Like, I'm not just here to listen. I'm here to, to let them know how much I appreciate them and clap and scream until I lose my voice. That's why I paid so much money to be here today. Part of the joy of being at the show is getting to cheer and celebrate and praise. And it's the same with God. Like, yes, he is praised and celebrating, but that's not some bait and switch. Like, I'll do all these great things for you and then you owe me. No, it's actually the most natural thing possible. If God's really blessed us in all these amazing ways, us praising him and responding with praise, it's not a debt that we owe him. It's the natural outflow that actually makes the blessings that much more exciting for us. Anything less not only robs God of the praise he deserves, but it robs us of the chance to fully appreciate our joy in that. Church, despite what we deserve, despite our failure and rebellion, God has blessed us. And he's blessed us with abundant, luxurious, lavish, overflowing blessings beyond what we could ever dare dream. And not only that, but he's invited us to join him in this cosmic rescue mission that involves everything in the universe throughout all of history. And we've only made it through 14 verses. I know it's, it's been a long time and we're far away from ancient Ephesus, but the things Paul has to say to us in this book are so relevant for us in our world today. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are at work in our world, uniting all things in Christ, bringing everything back to the way that it's supposed to be, despite our failure again and again, despite our sin and rebellion. And God, I confess that so often I lose sight of how big and grand and abundant your plans are. And I end up not being excited about what you're doing because of that. I pray that you give all of us just a, a big vision of who you are and a great excitement to join you in that work. In Jesus' name, amen.